Hello everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode of Push Dose EMS. A quick disclaimer up front. This episode was recorded at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. We did talk during the episode a bit about what steps are taken to combat the pandemic and protect our providers. After much discussion, we have chosen to remove that content from this episode. We are doing this simply as the guidance has changed substantially, and we do not want to put the providers at risk by sending seemingly miseducated messages about precautions and actions to take with COVID-19. Thank you, stay safe, and enjoy the podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to the long-awaited, much-anticipated inaugural episode of Push Dose EMS brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I will be your hosts for this joyous ride for the next 45 minutes, next hour, however long we decide to talk for. My name is Jeff Matcha. I am the Clinical Education QA Manager here at the Office of Emergency Management. A uh, little bit of background on me since this is our first episode. I do have a 12-year history in EMS uh, with an educator history of the last 10 years and a master's in education. I've brought some friends along with me for the ride today, uh, working from my left and around the room, not that that means anything to anybody since you're listening to this and not watching live. I have a board certified ER physician working at Freighter Hospital and taking a year to complete his EMS fellowship. Welcome to Dr. Tom Engel. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you having me. Glad you can make it. Uh, Sitting directly across from me, Having worked in EMS for 13 years, with a Bachelor of Science in EMS from Creighton University, and your EMS Division Director, welcome to Dan Pojar. Thanks for the invite. Dan's left, uh, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and your System Medical Director for Milwaukee County, welcome to Dr. Ben Weston. Thanks for having me. And last but certainly not least, with a bachelor's degree and a 33-year history of service right here in the city of Milwaukee as a firefighter, paramedic, and now your QA manager. Welcome to Linda Matrish. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for being here. So the goal, our topic area today, uh, big discussion points is going to be on our, our 12-lead review, our STEMI process, looking at a little bit of cardiology. But as a First step, I want to turn a lot of the floor over to Dan to give us some updates on what's going on here in the county. Recently, there's been some big news. We're in a federal awardee for ET3. What does that mean for our county, our providers? Yeah, so those who aren't familiar with the ET3 project, uh, this will fundamentally change the way we deliver EMS services in the county. Uh, So we were chosen as an awardee site, uh, plus about 100 other agencies in the United States, but ET3 stands for Emergency Triage Treatment and Transport. So it allows EMS agencies to do uh, three things. We can build in a type of health triage line into our dispatch center and screen calls from there. Uh, we can do a treat and release on scene and also bill for it. And then also it <clears throat> finally gives us the ability to transport to an alternative destination. So not every patient uh, <clears throat> that's appropriate when you necessarily need to go to an emergency department. They could go to a primary care clinic, a mental health facility, or in urgent care. So it's trying to uh, divert some of those patients away from the overuse of the ER and put them at the most appropriate medical location. Now, what's the kind of time frame we're looking for on that? Obviously, we can't start doing that tomorrow. Any rough guesses on, 
I know it's a big process. It's going to take a while. I just don't want to get everybody too excited that, hey, tomorrow morning I'll be able to take someone over to urgent care. Yeah, uh, we actually just found out last week that we were in a wardy, so uh, there's months of work still ahead of us. So this is going to be uh, a kind of a slow process rollout. I, I bet you this may be a teaser for a future podcast episode of ET3. We'll have an entire episode possibly dedicated to this. But we can certainly talk about that for a long time. I look forward to that coming up. Uh, something else the providers may know out there, the Watt County recently uh, declared a public health crisis with in regards to racial equity. As it mentions out quite a bit, uh, what does that mean for our providers, our EMS services out there? Yeah, so, so specifically with that, racism was declared as a public health uh, crisis last year in April. So we got almost a full year under our belt of really trying to promote the, the idea of uh, racial and social equity uh, across the county. Uh, one part that we can do as an EMS system is identify trends on uh, types of disease process, specifically chronic disease process and also acute uh, injury and illness uh, uh, based upon the population that we serve. So that's why we're uh, pushing the, uh, the request out there to ensure that everyone uh, records race on their uh, EPCR system so we can track that and then also uh, see if there's ways that we can improve uh, patient care all across the county. Uh, terrific. Now there's probably some more updates coming for our providers, uh, but this has been working real diligently with a number of folks from around the county with our EMS GAP subcommittee. Uh, what do we know? What's coming up? This is usually the time of year we start seeing new stuff. And I can turn that over to Dan or Dr. Weston. Yeah, I can take that one too. Uh, it's our EMS GAPS committee, so it's got a policy subcommittee where we have system input on uh, changes that they want to see in the guidelines, uh, specifically for uh, patient care guidelines and also practice guidelines as well. Uh, so the medical directors are reviewing that content right now. We're going to get ready to push that out probably in the next week. Uh, pending that the review goes well, and then the go live is mid-April tentatively uh, to get those uh, new practice guidelines in effect. So we'll give the system about a month to review it and digest it, uh, and also it gives them a chance to uh, give us another set of eyes on it in case any corrections need to be made. Excellent. So stay tuned for that information coming up on those new guideline updates. Uh, I also see that you have presence for the system coming up pretty soon. A yes. big purchase recently made? Yeah, actually yesterday, the PO was created for the Zoll Cardiac Monitor Replacement Project. So uh, last year we went uh, as OEM and also a large representation from the fire departments, specifically the chief level. So big thanks to the big chiefs out there for helping us uh, really promote this project to get approved by the county board. Uh, so we're replacing all cardiac monitors on ALS transport units across the county. And uh, we also snuck in a few different ones as well for the. Uh, so PO was created yesterday, the delivery will probably be two and a half, three months. So right before the DNC, we'll have Christmas and summer. New results for lots. It's excellent. Uh, along with the updates for the guidelines, there's some new forms, new documentation recommendations I see coming out. Uh, I know recently uh, everyone should have received a survey um, from Dr. Engel kind of talking about how we're doing trauma handoffs uh, in that discussion or any other new tools things like along those lines that are coming down the pipe yeah so dr angle's going to put together a presentation based upon the feedback from the system about uh, like trauma handoffs and then also we're developing a tool for cardiac arrest uh, and really the idea of the tool is 
uh, for the provider in the field, given the radio encode to online medical control and also online medical control to be looking at the same sheet of music. So when they're going down the checklist or saying, hey, I've got uh, start off with the patient age and sex, uh, start talking about downtime, um, shocks delivered on cardiac arrest, uh, what interventions have been performed, but we're not, it's not scattered. Uh, it's more, uh, I guess, prescribed, which is a little bit easier for both ends to follow to make sure that the communication is clear and consistent. So I thank everybody for their updates for the county. Uh, now it's time to really kind of deep dive into our main topic today, taking a look at uh, STEMIs, 12 leads. Uh, we all know it's a fairly time sensitive condition. It's something that we can have a major impact in in the EMS field. And so it's something that within the county, especially in our QA department, we we look at fairly closely. Uh, so now I'm gonna turn quite a bit over to Linda here. Uh, what kind of measures are we looking for when it comes to QAing and reviewing those STEMI cases here in the county? Well, STEMI is one of our uh, main core measures that we review along with stroke and cardiac arrest. Um, and within the STEMI review process or the STEMI um, uh, measure review, we look at eight different metrics. Um, the, the one that we're mostly focused on right now is accuracy, and um, Dr. Engel will talk more about our plan on that. But um, basically, for our STEMIs, um, in order to review these metrics, um, we have eight different indicators, and um, we gather data from uh, our transport units. We create a database of STEMI alerts, um, and uh, we review um, basically each STEMI case. Um, the metrics that we're, we look at are, um, one of them is uh, if we can deliver our STEMI patient to a hospital within 30 minutes of first medical contact. And again, being a time-sensitive emergency with the goal being reperfusion, this is uh, a key metric that our providers um, can assist in uh, keeping you know, under 30 minutes. Um, as a system for 2019, we were at 74.6% uh, for the entire year. And um, part of what we want to do is increase, decrease the time and increase compliance with, um, with that metric. Um, some of the other things that we look at is, uh, I mentioned the, um, the uh, sensitivity is, and that's correctly identifying our uh, STEMI, um, patients via the 12 lead ECG and um, that's something that we struggle with and that's what our semi-improvement uh, program is geared towards. As a system for 2019 we were at 46%. Um, and one thing I do want to mention is uh, STEMI alerts and our STEMI cases we reviewed have really increased over the years and back in 2017 we had 172 STEMI alerts for the entire year and for 2019 we actually had 400. So it's a lot of cases that we're reviewing. Um, in addition to that, obtaining the 12 lead uh, in a uh, very time efficient manner. Our, our um, metric is doing that within 10 minutes for all patients, for our STEMI patients, and in general, all patients 35 and older um, with uh, ACS symptoms and chest pain should have that, have a 12 lead done within 10 minutes. Um, that is a system for our STEMI patients. We were at um, 74%, 74.8% actually for, for 
for within 10 minutes. So, and again, being a time sensitive emergency, identifying that, um, you know, early in your on-scene process leads to early transport treatment, ultimately getting to the hospital and um, potential reperfusion. Um, another metric that we look at is um, giving aspirin. Our system is fantastic at that, giving aspirin for our STEMI patients, we're at 97% as a system for a year. Um, and then Jeff asked me about pain reduction strategy. <laughs> <laughs> How we're doing on uh, pain reduction. So one of the things we do really, really well is identify uh, which patients should uh, receive nitro and which patients nitro is contraindicated for. But I, what I really want to uh, encourage our system to do is take the next step and treat the patient's pain with the alternatives that they have, beginning with fentanyl. Um, so that's one of our, our major points with, with uh, treatment of STEMI. Um, and then a couple other things are activating the code STEMI alert process within 10 <coughs> minutes, um, keeping scene time less than 15 minutes, which is another metric we struggle with. We're at around 44%. Uh, and we understand that there are limitations with weather and distance and that, but again, I think identifying your STEMI, doing your 12 late early, um, identifying the STEMI will just um, improve those times as well. And then one thing that we're 100% on is delivering our STEMI patients to, to our, quote, STEMI hospitals that are capable of PCI. We, we're 100% for that for the So overall, it sounds like we're doing pretty well. Pretty good. I think there's a few key areas that we want to concentrate on, which is our accuracy and our scene time, especially, and pain management. Sure. You certainly bring up the, the pain management aspect, and you know, certainly we know the importance of aspirin, um, as well as the nitro for some pain relief. Uh, any issues with more aggressive fentanyl use? Starting to see it more often, and I can let the, either the physicians weigh in on that as well. Uh, you know, just so they know, you know, you know, certainly if we start seeing that nitro is contraindicated for, you know, your wall MIs or, or low blood pressure issues, um, what's the importance then of, of adding that additional pain medication and anything that they should be concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. So I can, I can jump on this one. So um, as we know, nitro is contraindicated in certain patients. So when that happens, we want to use fentanyl as our backup. We want to use it uh, mostly really just for pain relief. Um, there may be some vasodilation going on there, uh, but really it's mostly for pain relief in these patients. So um, definitely be aggressive with your fentanyl in, in these sort of patients where nitro is specifically contraindicated. Terrific. So yeah, it's definitely something we can start looking at a little bit more um, in advance in our practice and, and really trying to help that patient ease in. Because I imagine as the pain goes down, their anxiety comes down, that myocardial oxygen demand comes down and they, have a little bit, they can have a little bit better outcome. Absolutely. Once they get there. So again, I see, you know, probably the most notably low metric that we have is our STEMI accuracy. Um, and currently, what was it again? 40, 46%. 46%. And obviously we'd like to see that, you know, certainly improve. Uh, what sort of, and again, we might be able to go into it, Charlie. What sort of impacts does that have? Those missed, you know, those overactivations when we have, 54% of our uh, cases that are that are being called as STEMIs, and then they're not actually winding up being that route. So, Jeff, I appreciate you asking that question, man. So it's Tom here. 
Um, so I want to take a quick step back as we talk through this, uh, the question you just raised, as well as our STEMI improvement plan. And, you know, you got to have a little bit of back, uh, uh, background as to why we do all this stuff in pre-hospital STEMI alerts. So we know that pre-hospital STEMI alerts, um, when they're positive, are actually are really patient-centered patient approach um, to ensuring that we get rapid access to medical care and percutaneous coronary intervention to these patients that really need it. Um, we know that faster access to cardiac catheterization in the appropriate patient actually leads to improved healthcare outcomes. This means not only death, but also long-term morbidity. Um, so our goal is to ensure that every patient who has a pre-hospital STEMI has that identified in the pre-hospital setting based on all the technology that we have. And we understand if we're trying to catch all of our patients, we're going to have some amount of overactivation of patients that were actually not a STEMI. And we're okay with that. Um, but unfortunately, if you overactivate those 54% of patients in our system that are overactivating the system, it actually puts um, a lot of tax onto our emergency departments as these patients use up our resuscitation phase. We have to overtax our cardiac catheterization labs. Um, we have to pull in physicians, nursing staff, techs, and administrators um, in from home, which increases the amount of time they're working. Also, when we're doing this, we're pulling away resources from other patients that might actually really need this resource. So by overactivating the cardiac catheterization lab, we tend to pull resources to the wrong patient at the wrong time. So that's one of the main reasons why we get concerned about overactivation. Um, and you know, one of the things that we've decided is we have a little bit of an issue here. It's something that we can improve on. So we developed a STEMI improvement process over the next six months that's really a four-pronged approach that's been kind of led by our medical direction team and our uh, quality review team here at the Office of Emergency Management. So if you don't mind, I'd like to go run through that four-pronged approach here. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Everything you can give to the providers is great. Wonderful. So um, our four-pronged approach is basically starting with a couple of things. First and foremost, we want to make sure that we um, get this information out and identified by our line providers, okay? What this means is, you know, we want to talk about this here on our podcast. We want to talk to our EMS liaisons um, that we deal with on a monthly basis. We're going to put a lot of information out into the newsletters as well as I know, Jeff, you're putting this into our coffee talks to really try to improve and get people to understand that we have a, an improvement avenue to make this a little bit better for our patients or something we can work on. Um, so not only are we working with uh, getting everybody to understand this, but we also want people to um, really start working on their education process here. Uh, our education process is really getting our pre-hospital and line providers to understand what the American Heart Association definition of a STEMI actually is. Uh, I was going to just run through that really quick just so people have an idea of what AHA criteria of STEMI is. Is that okay? Yeah, that'd be great, especially give them another avenue because it's currently coming out on their coffee talk assignments at the bottom, but another chance to hear it maybe from a different, different perspective would be great. Sure. So really the AHA STEMI criteria is relatively simple. So you need S new ST elevations and two contiguous leads. Now we consider all leads except for V2 and V3 to be needing one millimeter or greater of ST elevations. If it is V2 or V3, this elevation increase changes based on the patient's age and sex. If it's a male over the age of 40, they need two millimeters of ST elevations in V2 or V3. If it's a male less than the age of 40, they need two and a half millimeters in leads two or leads three. And if they're a female, they need one and a half millimeters of ST elevation, regardless of age in V2 and V3. Now, if you don't know the age of the sex, we consider lead two or lead three to be um, 
and ST elevation if greater than 1.5 millimeters in both those leads. So the way you think about it is all leads besides V2 and V3 need one millimeter. In V2 and V3, we change this definition based on the patient's age and sex. Um, and you know, it's something that you can put up in your med rigs is something that we'll be able to pull up in the future onto the OEM app as a tool so you'll have a better idea as to what this is if you're actually questioning it. Oh, it'd be great to have a resource available out to them, something to look at pretty quickly if they're questionable on if it's borderline or not. Yeah, I know, because sometimes I even have a hard time remembering the exact pages. So having a resource is going to be really, really important to get everybody on the same page. Um, the next thing we're hoping to educate our providers with is really getting them to understand what some of the deficiencies are that we're seeing in these ST segment elevation MIs or these STEMI activations that are not really STEMIs. And some of the things we see are, we see really poor quality EKGs, um, meaning wandering baselines or missing leads that are being activated as STEMIs. And if you don't have the, a, a clean test, you really can't make the diagnosis. So first and foremost, we'd like to work on making sure our, uh, our EKGs are all good quality. Next, we really wanna work with our providers to get them to understand that left bundle branch blocks and paced rhythms already always have ST segments that are elevated so they can falsely represent a STEMI. And the last is we're gonna be working on hopefully providing increased education on reading a STEMI through a right bundle branch block. While it's possible, it's really, really difficult. It does require increased level of knowledge to pick those STEMIs out with the person with underlying right bundle branch blocks. And the last thing I wanna mention is that, you know, we have this wonderful tool with increased technology called Dr. Zoll. And Dr. Zoll often prints something, uh, an EKG that says star, 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 STEMI. And you know, when you see star, 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 STEMI printed out by Dr. Zoll, you should say, well, this is concerning. I need to spend time and actually look at this EKG. But not all star, 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 STEMIs are STEMIs. Dr. Zoll overcalls STEMIs. So we recommend that if you see star, 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 STEMI, you spend time and actually review the EKG on your own because we, all, we know that you're all wonderful providers and you have a lot of education. And if you don't see the STEMI there and you don't think the patient's having a STEMI, you are free to not call this a STEMI alert. Um, if you're questioning it, you can always utilize the, the help of online medical control, but not all star, 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 STEMIs need to be a STEMI alert. Sure, and you might be able to combine those at kind of the first point too when it comes to the criteria with uh, AHA and determining whether or not it's a STEMI and the variations when it comes to age and gender and making sure that those variables are getting entered into the ZOL as you're running those because that might affect the algorithm. That a relatively comfortable something to say? Yeah, so that does affect the algorithm, meaning that if you put in the patient's age correctly, Dr. Zoll should interpret the EKG differently based on the age and sex. So that should absolutely help Dr. Zoll make a better um, diagnosis for you. But at the same time, every EKG should be reviewed by the, the paramedic um, when it comes out, whether it says star, 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 STEMI or not, to see if you either agree or disagree with the readings. Because we also know on the flip end, Zoll misses STEMIs that are apparent as well. Certainly, and it might misinterpret a bad tracing if the patient was moving, something like that. So you know, getting our eyes on it is absolutely important. Sure. So, you know, those were two of the four things. I'm just going to finish up the last three really, really quickly. Um, we also want to really improve our OEM internal operations for how we provide you with process improvement stuff. So we know that every time that a STEMI is activated, it's reviewed by some of the board certified ER physicians here on the medical direction team. We use the AHA criteria to review all the EKGs. And then we've sent uh, this feedback uh, to all of our providers who are on the call so they can see uh, what we were thinking about the EKG. We've recognized that one of the tabs of does not meet STEMI criteria really isn't helpful. So in the future, we're really gonna be providing you with a full read on all EKGs so you can see what our thought process was about why an EKG is or is not a STEMI. 
And the last thing is, you know, on those EKG feedback forms, we do provide you with a survey to give us some idea about how you liked the feedback. And if you would continue to fill this out, it'd be really, really helpful because it gives us an idea of what we need to change to better provide you with education. So keep filling out those surveys for us. It'd be really helpful. I think it's great that you're sending out that feedback to the providers. That's in many systems, something that's, that's lacking quite a bit of, you know, I, I pick up my patient, I do my treatment, my assessment, I transport, I drop them off and that's the end of it I hear. Uh, and it's always nice sometimes to see, you know, different interpretation or, you know, if there's potential for patient outcomes, how they did uh, in their course of their treatment. So, and the last thing, you know, we're really going to focus on, we really want to um, create an EKG review guideline for our providers. So you can kind of walk through concerning EKGs. It's going to really be an algorithmic approach that's going to come out over the next, with the next uh, uh, EMS gaps review of our guidelines. Um, and what it's going to do is going to give you an algorithmic approach about how to make sure EKG quality is good, when to consider talking to online medical control, um, and what other interventions you can perform in somebody who appears to be ill with possible evolving acute coronary syndrome, but no obvious STEMI on the EKG. Because we do understand that a lot of our meds are trying to advocate for their patients by activating STEMI alerts when it's not a clear STEMI on the EKG. But if we just want to move into providing the right resources for the right patient at the right time. So we want to give you some things that you can do to improve the care of these non-STEMI but concerning cardiac patients. And that's kind of our four-pronged approach we hope to roll out over the next six months to show uh, significant improvement. So we look forward to working with you guys on that. That's terrific. It definitely been a lot of work put into that plan. Uh, thanks to both the fellows and the medical direction and the QA team. Uh, and certainly, you know, our education team is putting out some Great content, hopefully getting your eyes on a few more 12 leads and EKGs, uh, some reviews in those coffee talks. I'd look forward to fairly in the near future, some more education in uh, 12 leads in brief uh, coming up fairly shortly. You mentioned during uh, your talk about the improvement plan, a lot of things that we're noticing as, as kind of false positive are those right bundle blanches, wandering baseline, some accuracy <laughs> issues. Uh, there's actually kind of an interesting mnemonic that got that has been presented and put out. Uh, raised ST segment is, and in no way do I expect everyone's going to remember this entire acronym because that's lots of letters for an acronym. Uh, but it outlines a number of things that can be mistaken for STEMIs or mimic STEMIs on a 12 lead. Uh, running through them real quickly, uh, looking at starting with your R for raised raised intracranial pressure, so your hemorrhagic strokes, ICP can have caused some EKG changes. Along with your right bundle branches, your, your left bundle branches, nuance that left bundle branches can look just like it. Pericarditis and inflammation, uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, electrolyte imbalances like hyperkalemia, uh, ventricular pace rhythms, if they have an implanted defibrillator, uh, can definitely throw off those QRS complexes, make it look like an, a raised ST segment, um, Brugada syndrome, thoracic aortic dissection, spasm of the coronary arteries, which is Prinz metals, uh, potential pulmonary embolism, uh, Takasubo, uh, which is more along the lines of grief and that broken heart syndrome, uh, a recent MI that may have been treated or passed a little bit on its own, but still presenting you know, if they just gotten released after a cardiac catheterization, there may be some ST segment changes, uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, 
they might just have really repolarization and that ST segment's normal for them. And then hypothermics patients can present with some goofy look in ST segments as well. Some of these things we can certainly look at and understand in the field. We should be able to recognize patient, hopefully we'll be able to give you information if they have an implanted defibrillator. But many of uh, same thing with Takasubos. Uh, pericarditis is going to require some additional testing and interpretation. So I guess the big message that came out of this discussion was if it looks like a STEMI, if it smells like a STEMI, treat it like a STEMI, but use your interpretation. We have those AHA guidelines out there that are going to meet the criteria. And certainly with a nuance at left bundle branch, we're still going to treat that at least pre-hospitally in the same way we would with a STEMI patient. Uh, since it's so difficult for us to tell in the field without some additional testing on, on what can cause some of these mimics. So there are mimics out there and you might get that feedback. But if you're ever in doubt and it looks like a STEMI, either get some get med online medical control on the phone, let them take a look at your 12 lead, give you a little bit of guidance. Or if you're fairly certain, you know, you know we, we prefer to err on the side of caution, so we're going to call that alert and get them treated as best as we can. All right, to kind of round out our day, uh, we have gotten some questions in out from the community, out from the providers here in the county. Uh, so I'm going to pose these out to our anybody who really wants to take a swing at some of these questions uh, and let our listeners know what you think. Uh, so start with number one. What do I do if I have a patient who has scary sounding chest pain, but not a STEMI? I want to call a STEMI alert to advocate for my patient, but I hear I can't do that. We just kind of talked about that. Dr. Weston. Yeah, I'll grab this one. Thanks, Jeff. So it's a great question and a question we hear a lot uh, from our providers. So you certainly want to advocate for your patient, uh, but sometimes you have those cases that you're really concerned about, but the EKG just doesn't quite meet uh, STEMI criteria. So the question is, should I still call the STEMI alert to really get the resources together? Uh, should I not? Is there something in between I should do? Uh, so I think first and foremost, uh, we want to advocate for our patients. And so the best way to advocate for our patients in this way um, is to do a few things. So I think the first point is STEMI is really a diagnosis based on that EKG. So if your EKG does not meet the STEMI criteria that Dr. Engel was talking about earlier, it's not a STEMI. Um, and we don't want to activate for a STEMI. We already talked about uh, the resources that go into a STEMI activation. Certainly it's worth Using all those resources uh, on a STEMI patient, absolutely. This is a time-sensitive, critical condition. But if it doesn't meet the criteria, um, there's a few other things that we can do uh, to help kind of better interpret that EKG, but then also optimize the patient's condition. So, so really, if you are, are concerned about it, look at that EKG and make sure you have the best EKG you can get. So if you feel like you have a poor quality EKG, we've talked about wandering baselines, we've talked about missing leads, things like that. If you're worried about the quality of your EKG, repeat it. Get another EKG uh, and see what's going on. Even if you are seeing maybe some elevation, but it doesn't quite qualify, certainly repeat that EKG in a few minutes too. A lot of times the, the STEMI criteria um, and the appearance of the EKG is going to uh, change over time and it's going to modify even in the matter of five, 10 minutes. It's something we do in the ED all the time is get serial EKGs. So repeat it in five, 10 minutes, see what it's looking at at that point. Um, make sure you're not having excessive artifact. Make sure you're getting the best possible EKG possible. Now, if you repeat it, it's still not meeting STEMI criteria, but you're really worried about that patient. I still would not call a STEMI alert, but what I would do is do those serial EKGs, serial vital signs, keep an eye on especially that blood pressure, that heart rate, 
Um, consider giving some fluids if your patient's hypovolemic. Um, really optimize and maximize your medical management of this patient within our guidelines. And then really, if, if after all that, <clears throat> you're still worried about this patient, you still feel like something more needs to be done, and you're worried about that EKG, this is really what online medical control is for. So give us a call. We're always happy to talk. We can kind of talk through these cases, look right at your EKG with you, uh, and figure out sort of what the best thing is to do. <clears throat> Thanks, Dr. Weston. Uh, we'll move on to the next one then. Uh, so I have a patient who has an alternative cause for chest pain. Say we have a 55-year-old male, complaining of shortness of breath, wheezing on exam, everything that we expect to see. Why am I here that kind of expected to get a 12-lead EKG of this patient? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's Tom here. Jeff, I'm going to grab that question right from you, man. Um, so I think there's two reasons you have to think about this. One, when patients, even when patients present with similar symptoms for asthma or a COPD exacerbation, those patients often have multiple other comorbidities. So not only can that asthma exacerbation or that COPD exacerbation push them into having a STEMI because of the stress on their body, but they could also be having a STEMI at the same time. Or another scenario would be a patient who is wheezing, not all wheezing is from the lungs. This could be a STEMI that has now caused some heart failure and the patient is actually having pulmonary edema and presenting with uh, wheezing on exam. So we really use a lot of risk factors, mainly age and then any kind of chest pain or shortness of breath, even if we think it's more likely for them to have another diagnosis um, for indicators for us to do an EKG. It's an easy thing, it's cheap, it's painless, and it um, is something that we should do on basically any patient we're concerned could be having a cardiac event. Does that make some sense? Yeah, absolutely. As, as far as procedure goes, it's not invasive. It should be one, 10 quick patches, off you go. At least you can get some answers one way or another. And if it was that asthmatic, asthmatic wheezing, so now they have a picture of how the heart was working. It looks like it was doing good. And you hopefully at least helped to rule out any other cardiac causes. So I run that EKG and my zone monitor says, STEMI. I look at the EKG it doesn't look like a STEMI. Do I have to call this as a STEMI? Should I call into base with a STEMI alert? So yeah, so I'll jump on this one. So uh, we're seeing this a lot. And honestly, I think this is why our percentages uh, are hovering kind of in the 40s um, for our STEMI activity. I think this is a major uh, component on it. So I think this is an important point to stress. And I know Dr. Engel talked a little bit about it and, and Jeff talked a little bit, a bit about it already, but uh, I think it's important to revisit it. So that star, star, star STEMI, uh, is, is a computer interpretation, which a lot of times is right. Um, but uh, I'm going to trust every one of your uh, interpretations a lot more than I'm going to trust that computer interpretation. So uh, so what do you do with that? I think you uh, it, it might raise your suspicion. It may make you take a second look at that EKG. Um, but ultimately, for our paramedics out there, you're highly trained, you're competent, you've seen lots of EKGs. Uh, put that training, put that uh, competence to the test. Um, and use it and look at that EKG and think, do you think this is a STEMI? Is it meeting STEMI criteria uh, as Dr. Engel outlined? And if it's not, then it's not a STEMI, no matter what the star, star, star STEMI says at the top. We're seeing uh, a good number of EKGs that say star, star, star STEMI at the top. They're activated as STEMIs uh, to the hospitals. Uh, and you can squint at it as long as you want. And you're just not seeing any ST elevation there. So, so really use that. Trust yourself. Trust what you're doing. Um, you know, uh, take a second look if you're seeing that star, star, star STEMI, um, but don't rely on it completely. Um, so, so I think that's really the take-home message for this. Thanks, Dr. Weston. 
Uh, along those lines, and with the way Zoll picks up and uses its algorithms to determine stemmies or not, if we're looking at posterior wall stemmies, it's a little bit trickier to pick up on a 12 lead. How does the Zoll do with that? And is there anything I should do then if I'm seeing posterior wall on my, on my 12 lead? Yeah, I'm going to grab that from you, Jeff. Um, so when Zoll identifies a posterior wall MI, it's identifying ST depressions in D1, 2, and 3. The reason it says ST cell segment elevation in those is because of those depressions. It is set then to give you a star, star, star STEMI read. And if you read next to that star, star, star STEMI read, it'll show you where the Zoll thinks the STEMI is. If it says star, star, star STEMI, posterior wall infarct or posterior MI, it is only alerting you that there could be a posterior wall MI and that the only way to figure that out is to then do a 15 lead or a posterior EKG where you take leads four, five, and six and put them in a triangle fashion underneath the left scapula. There's, if you do that and then rerun your 12 lead and it has ST elevations in V4, 5, and 6, you can say then that the new location of V4, 5, and 6, which is now 7, 8, 9, is likely a posterior wall MI but you cannot call an ST segment or a STEMI on a posterior wall MI identified on only your basic 12 lead. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually got to take that camera and turn it around and look at the back to see if there's actually an infarct going on. Exactly. There. So if you see posterior wall MI from star, 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 STEMI, do a posterior EKG or get on the phone with online medical control is the answer. So if I'm sending those 12 leads up, How would hospitals like to know or EMS comms like to know that this second 12 lead that I sent through is a posterior wall? Is that just something that they should be reporting in their uh, in their radio report and say that second one time stepped at this time is a posterior? Because it's hard to mark it on, you know, when we're transmitting directly off the 12 lead. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, communicating through EMS comms is going to be your most uh, effective way to do that. And then they can communicate it with us to the hospital because... Uh, like you're like you're talking about when those EKGs often get faxed over, um, it can be tricky to see what's going on. So that notification from EMS com uh, can come to the hospital. We can look at that EKG and know the full context of what's going on. Terrific, thanks, Dick. Uh, so, and we talked about it a little bit earlier with Linda when it came to came to nitro administration as well as that fentanyl administration, uh, and certainly the limitations when it comes to administering uh, nitroglycerin in certain patient populations. We know those inferior wall MIs, those hypotensive patients, but there's also this weird kind of caveat in there of, you know, that tachycardic rhythm. Right now, it's, you know, any rate over 100, and I don't want to steal your thumb, I think that's getting bumped up to 120, correct? That's right, yes. that's right. All right, so why are we concerned at this rate, at this, you yeah. know, rate has this impact on nitro? Sure, Jeff, so I can talk about that. So. So like you talked about, uh, inferior MIs are worried about that uh, preload reduction from the nitro. Uh, uh, patients who've recently taken uh, vasodilating drugs, uh, like erectile dysfunction drugs, are worried about that uh, drop in preload. Uh, hypotension, we're worried about that drop in preload. So tachycardia um, is a similar thing. So when we look at patients who are tachycardic, um, when they're given nitro, they're a lot more likely to have a hypotensive response than patients who are uh, normocardic or don't have a, a fast heart rate. Um, so that's really what we're getting at here. The 100 cutoff, um, I think we can liberalize that a little bit. So we're gonna move that up to 120. Um, it should still be safe in our patients, but uh, allow 
uh, a little bit larger subset of patients to get nitro when they really need it uh, to help with their chest pain swelling. So it really winds up being that preload issue that you know, the heart rate's going too fast, so it's already down a little bit. If my vasodilate them out, that preload drops and exactly. blood pressure yeah. issues. And exactly, they're a little more of a setup for that for that blood pressure drop in the tachycardia. Actually, that being said, that's all that we have for you today. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks, Dr. Engel, Dan, Dr. Weston, Thank Linda, you. everybody for attending today. I wish everybody a safe and happy afternoon. Thanks a lot. Bye.